Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, we look into the psychology of the soccer penalty kick. Some of the most important matches played wind up boiling down to what many fans feel like is more of a crapshoot than a fair contest. But penalty kicks, it turns out, are as much about the mind as they are about the foot. What is the secret to a great Christmas song? Why do some become holiday classics while so many get discarded like yesterday's wrapping paper? We ask a singer-songwriter known as the Queen of Christmas about what it takes to compose a little seasonal magic. We head to Seattle to take a look at the incredible legacy of the Boeing 747 as the 1,574th and final jumbo jet rolled off the assembly line earlier this week. But first, Alberta's sovereignty in a United Canada Act may be seen as either the province standing up for itself or an unnecessary and unconstitutional attempt to pick a fight with Ottawa. We ask a Liberal MP from Edmonton what the federal government makes of it and how they'll respond. It's been an interesting week in Canadian politics, certainly in Alberta politics. Very early Thursday morning, most of us would have been fast asleep when it was around 1 a.m. in Edmonton. Uh, Alberta's United Conservative Party passed Bill 1, better known as the Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act. It now awaits royal assent. It is a bit of a slimmed down or watered down version of the legislation first introduced late last month as a very controversial part of it that uh, granted Premier Daniel Smith's cabinet the power to bypass its own legislature and rewrite laws as it saw fit was scrapped. Uh, Still, You know, there's been a lot of controversy around what this does, which which essentially allows uh, Alberta, at least according to this legislation, uh, to opt out of uh, laws. It doesn't feel feels are harmful to Alberta's interests. We don't know exactly what the definition of harmful is yet. But, uh, you know, Danielle Smith says this is all about resetting the relationship with uh, Justin Trudeau and Ottawa. Uh, Still, again, it remains a controversial, potentially unconstitutional bill certainly signals a more confrontational approach on a whole range of issues. And uh, the Premier had some interesting things to say about the federal government uh, in the legislature in those wee hours of Thursday morning. Here she is. It's not like Ottawa is a national government. As a, The way our country works is that we are a federation of sovereign, independent jurisdictions. Um, well, no, <laughs> not really. This isn't the European Union, right? I mean, it isn't. Uh, they are a national government. It doesn't matter whether you think they encroach. I mean, this is all very well set out. Anyway, I'm sure that was written down. There was no mistake there, uh, but it, it it just isn't right. It just isn't right. Anyway, um, you know, you could go to Quebec and get some people to agree with you on that one. But, you know, we do have a national government. They have MPs from everywhere. We're about to meet one, actually. The opposition NDP, of course, um, the Former Premier Rachel Notley says that the changes made don't reduce concerns. The bill is, in fact, unconstitutional. First Nation chiefs uh, from Alberta have spoken out against it, calling it undemocratic, unconstitutional, an infringement on their rights. Uh, The Prime Minister said, well, the federal government's going to work as constructively as possible with Alberta. We're not going to get into... um arguing about something that uh, uh, that uh, obviously is is the Alberta government trying to push back at the federal government. 
pick a fight is more like it. But, you know, if someone wants to pick a fight, do you fight back or not? In this case, it seems not. But let's confirm that. Joining me now is Randy Boissonneau. He's the Liberal Member of Parliament for Edmonton Centre. He's also the Minister of Tourism and the Associate Minister of Finance. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Ben. It's been quite the week. I mean, it really feels like uh, the Premier of Alberta is throwing a gauntlet down. Uh, How do you respond? Well, I think that uh, the best role that we as Albertans can play in the country is keep doing what we've been doing, which is uh, you know, punching above our weight and being uh, strong and really quite prosperous in our in our relationship with uh, the federal government and inside of Canada. I'll say one thing about the Alberta Sovereignty Act, Ben, that it's a distraction. Uh, Industry doesn't need it. We've heard very clearly from chiefs that six, seven and eight treaties don't like it. And you know, when I'm on the doors and I'm talking to Albertans, they they send us to Ottawa, they send us to uh, Edmonton, they send us to the the city governments, and they say very clearly, we want you guys to work together. We, not, we need you to deliver results for us. And the Alberta Sovereignty Act isn't going to help a single business to prosper. It's not going to help any Albertan face, you know, the rising affordability challenges. And I do remain very concerned that it's going to send a, uh, an unfortunate and damaging signal to the international investment community that Alberta is embracing uncertainty instead of stability. There's a lot of work for us to head. And my mission since day one as being an MP and certainly since being as minister is to work in partnership with the provincial government. And my appeal to the premier and to her ministers is let's keep doing what our constituents want us to do, which is to work together. I'm pretty confident to say, Ben, that uh, no Albertans want this fight. They don't want this act. And uh, they want us to get along and get stuff done for them. Well, clearly some people do. I mean, I think what what I hear me hearing from you here is that Oh, everything is fine. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. And I think what we're seeing in Alberta, and you know this, you live in Edmonton, is a recognition that, in fact, everything isn't fine. Now, this may be an extreme way of pushing the envelope, but I think there is an acknowledgement in Alberta that there's something amiss. Something's wrong with the relationship between the province and Ottawa. How do you fix it? Well, I think if the premier and her ministers can articulate what the things are that we need to work on, we'll sit down and get those things done. Ben, we're going to lead the we're going to lead the country in economic growth for the next two, maybe three years. Why do you want to get in the way of that? I mean, we have Dow Chemical looking at investing $12 billion in the Alberta heartland. And so, I mean, why would we put investments like that at risk? We just showed that the government came to the table, federal government, $300 million. The province put in $161 million. And we're going to have air products building the biggest net zero hydrogen plant in the world right here in Northeast Edmonton. That's that's what happens when we get together and work together and we send a really clear signal to the investment community that we can get, get stuff done. And I did that with Premier Kenny and his ministers and certainly my my constituents and people that I talk to want us to to work together. So that's what I'm bringing to the table. And if there are crunchy bits or files that that are, are sticky, then we sit down and talk about it and work them through. I don't think saying that we're going to cherry pick which laws uh, the Alberta government should follow uh, is the way to proceed. And it makes municipalities really nervous, means that universities, the RCMP, nonprofits, uh, organizations that um, need the federal government to continue their work might be uh, offside either of the federal government or the provincial government. So I'm really hoping that this act is never used and that we continue to work together. So do you get the sense that Ottawa is having a very hard time championing what it is good at in Alberta that I mean, I grew up in Quebec, I remember how much people used to turn their ears off anytime uh, Ottawa was praised. Uh, In Alberta, now it feels the same that doesn't matter what you do, it'll be viewed not by everyone, but you're having a very hard time 
uh, telling a positive story about federalism right now in your home province? I don't think so, Ben. And I grew up in the I grew up in the Peter Lahey days. That's sort of when I came came of age politically, if you'd say. And I remember, you know, Peter Lahey taking shots at the at the federal government through the the seventies and into the eighties. And it was always done. And look, airing grievances is is some of the is is part of the the history of of the of the federation. And, and, and but doing it in a in a in a sense of making the country better is is certainly the place that I want to be at. And look, Ben, my job is to fight for Alberta. And I do so every day. And I, I get my elbows up in the corners and I make sure that we're we're delivering. And I don't think there's a, a hard story to tell what federalism does. I think we could do, we can always do a better job as a government communicating, you know, uh, not just the announcements, but how do those announcements benefit people? And I, look, do we have a communications issue as a government? I think that that is a fair tag, but making the case for federalism, no. There are there are millions of extremely proud Albertan Canadians, and um, we're going to get through this this patch. And I just know that we're we're stronger together there, and we're better together. And that's my that's my modus operandi as an as an MP and as a minister. Do you take this fight to court? Look, there's nothing to take to court at this point. We I said this in the media earlier this week, and I'll say it to you. I want to see that, that having a law is one thing. How the law is used is another. And the prime minister is really clear, Ben. We don't want to fight with Alberta over this, but we are going to defend federalism and we're going to defend the country. And what people want us to do is sit down and with a sustainable jobs program to to work with Alberta uh, energy workers. And so I just know there's so much that we need to do, Ben, and that the world needs us to do, that having a distraction like the Alberta Sovereignty Act is it's just that. It's a distraction. A uh, last question, uh, Premier sure. Smith said, it's not like Ottawa is a national government <laughs> the other day. Uh, you know, that 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 is a, a very difficult dance partner. Are you worried? And we've talked again, we're hearing about talk of sovereignty and so forth. Again, you know, having grown up in Quebec, this is all very familiar language. Do you worry this is headed down a path where if you don't do something, if the federal government doesn't do something more uh, decisive uh, to defend federalism, that it will it will erode? Federalism will remain strong. And the country will remain strong and unified on our watch. Ben, I'm part of a national government. I sit in it with my colleague, George Shahal from Calgary Skyview. And we pull all these representatives from across the country to make decisions on behalf of the country. And the constitutional monarchy, uh, democracy that we have relies on a separation of powers that the architects of confederation figured out. And Federal jurisdiction, we have our responsibility, so does the province, but Canada works as a federation because we've got the national government and we've got partners that you know defend their turf, which it makes a lot of sense, and yet that we also have to come to the table and get stuff done. And and you know, in in the great Canadian tradition, that means we've got compromises to do on files. We've got to listen to each other. And uh, that's what I'm certainly going to continue doing. And I do it with a, a number of the Alberta ministers. And as Alberta's minister. In the federal cabinet, I want to see our province and Albertans prosper, and I want us to see us get our fair share and then some. And uh, we can do that with the provincial government, and that's my my appeal and my my daily mission. Randy Bosano, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. So, as I'm sure you probably know, the World Cup is on in Qatar right now. Probably the most watched sporting event on the planet happens every four years. And so the stakes are incredibly high, clearly. And every four years, you watch two teams battle it out for 90 minutes first, then 
some extra time, another half an hour of extra time. And then after that, they stop playing. They go to what's called penalty kicks. The game is literally decided over the course of usually just five penalty kicks. Whoever kicks scores the most wins. And it seems like an awfully cruel and arbitrary way to end what has been a titanic contest. But it's a very demanding game. So they can't play on forever, right? And this has always been the way that it's been done. Um, and it happened again today. In fact, both quarterfinals today ended in penalty kicks. One of them was spectacular for, for many, many reasons. Tiny Croatia, who played against Canada in the preliminary round. We, of course, are at home. I don't know if you're still watching. It's still happening. Uh, they were finalists in 2018, which is remarkable for a country of, I think, three and a half million people, smaller than Alberta. Um, they knocked off Brazil today. The perennial powerhouse, always a favorite going in. They beat them in penalty kicks. And the reason why that's so remarkable is that they beat Japan in the last round in penalties. They lost in the final in Russia in 2018. Prior to that, they won their previous two matches in penalties. Croatia had never been in a penalty shootout in the previous four World Cups they had played in. And now they've won four in a row. And it gets you thinking, maybe it's not such a crap shoot after all, because it's often seen as being a bit of a crapshoot. Um, there's clearly a ton of science to it these days because so much of the analytics and there's so much technology in sport and psychology in sport now that there's a lot more to it. I mean, there's a lot of information, but it really, penalty kicks in soccer are like watching human frailty on a giant screen because you think this player has to have scored on a billion times and they're going to miss this. They're going to miss this kick. You can feel it the way they walk up to address the ball. You think, this isn't going in. And you're often right without knowing anything about it. Now, we can't play you audio from the World Cup because the restrictions, FIFA's restrictions are pretty intense. But we will play you a comedy one that sort of approximate, approximates what it's all about. He yells up again for the second attempt, looking to make it 2-0. He approaches the ball with some determination. Here he goes. Oh! oh it's high and wide. Way off target. Yes, apparently he thought he was kicking a field goal. <laughs> Wrong kind of football, I'd say. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that's a comedy one. So what is the key to success? How can it prove to be so challenging for professional athletes? And forget soccer. I mean, soccer as well, but free throws and basketball, penalty shots and hockey. I mean, these are where the, the odds are a bit more even, but... These are incredibly intense moments psychologically for athletes. And it got me thinking again today, are penalty kicks as much about the mind as they are about the foot? Who better to talk about this than my next guest? Alex Hodgins is a mental performance coach who coached with the Canadian women's soccer team at the Olympics in 2016 and in 2020. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. I know this is a bit of a, a bit of one, but I'm sure you must feel the same way. Every time I watch penalty kicks, I'm like, wow, that must be the worst feeling to be that guy who misses or that woman who misses. Um, I, I imagine you probably saw a bit of the two matches today, at least the replays. Once again, the, the miracle, you know, sort of the oddity of the penalty kick. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, my, my anxiety today, my heart rate was, was up. Uh, extreme levels just watching it as a fan uh, of the sport so you can imagine what the player is actually going through in that moment exactly so so tell me a bit about the psychology of it because I know that there is just volumes of data that players can rely on now they must have they must know everything about the goalie they're facing the goalie must know everything about the shooter and yet it feels like it comes down to the mind 
Yeah, I think you're right. I, there's been a, a lot of, of research of late and a lot of good information's been put in, out there that everyone knows about. As you said, there's, you know, what the goalie tends to do, what the shooter tends to do, where their preferred location to shoot is or where they're most comfortable. But at the same time, there is that element of actually being able to do what you plan to do. And that changes dramatically from a training session to being in a stadium with 65,000 people. And then another, I'm not sure, 200 million people watching worldwide. Um, That pressure is hard to replicate in a training um, environment. So being able to actually deliver, in my opinion, really comes down to more of the psychological aspect than the technical because these guys as you sort of said in your opener there they can they can probably make that shot 10 out of 10 times and under most circumstances yeah 10 out of 10 i would think and, and you're right you know and the, and the weight of your entire country on you as well and i guess the fear of not wanting to be that person who misses that's why we always feel i always feel so bad for the person who ultimately misses the final kick you know they always have that that shot of that one with their hands their hands in their head um their hands on their head looking like you know they've just like it's going to define them (laughs) somehow as a sports psychologist you know doing what you do how do you how do you address that with athletes yeah i mean it's it's a good question i think the main thing without sounding too cliche is in those moments you're really trying to control what you can right so there's a what we use a a term in our field is like a signal versus a noise. And and we try to train athletes to pay attention to the signals. So in soccer, for example, you know, it's, it's the decision of where you want to kick it. So that's a good signal having a clear target. I encourage them to have the smallest possible target they could think of. uh, Cause that really sort of narrows their attention in on that. Uh, They have a routine, you know, for example, if you watch the, the Olympic games with the Canadian women's national team, we had a, one of our players named Jesse Fleming made two very critical kicks in the semifinals and the final um, match. And if you watch what she did and, and kind of spliced them side by side, you'd see the exact same pattern that she used walking back from the ball, how many steps she took, um, how she collected herself, how she took a breath. It was almost Uh, to the second of what she did and how she collected herself. So that's another controllable or another signal that you can pay attention to. Um, And then the third thing I would say that part of it's just trust, trust and commitment. You know, you've got to really trust your decision. At the end of the day, you're trying to score and the goalie's trying to save it. If you do everything you can and you put the ball exactly where you planned on and wanted to and the goalie saves it, well, that's sort of the heartbreak of sport, but you've controlled what you can. Um, now the other side is there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of distractions. And if you get your attention sort of shifts away to those things and the what ifs and what's the country going to think if I fail and what are my loved ones going to, et cetera. Well, a lot more of a difficult scenario to execute under those, those circumstances. Yeah. Jesse Fleming was remarkable at the Olympics. So that was cool as a cucumber, but I mean, who knows what's going on inside, right? It's just the ability to focus that seems so, so admirable when you watch it from afar, especially if you're not an athlete anywhere near that caliber. Absolutely. And a lot of that is, is comes down to training and preparation. You know, you need to, we did a lot of work on preparing for that moment and doing our best to make as much of a replication of that. So it would transfer to, you know, an Olympic finals. And I'm glad we put that effort in. We, we explained the psychology behind it. We explained how they should approach kicks, some of the things they need to develop individually 
even things from a team standpoint, how they feel connected. Cause imagine walking from the center line all the way to the net by yourself and what's going through your head. So how do you create connection with your teammates in that moment? So you don't feel isolated and alone. There's a lot of things that, that went into it. I think Croatia is demonstrating um, how well you can do it consistently, not just in this world cup, but in previous as well. Yeah, I mean, you're right. When you think about the whole setup for the soccer penalty kick in those incredibly dramatic moments, it's all set up to put pressure on on the spot kick, right? The the long walk, the, everyone watching, the camera zeroing in on that one person. Unlike hockey, there's no helmet. You're there. You're there. You're standing essentially stark out in the middle of this field. It must exactly. be just an unbelievable, um, unbelievable situation. What about the goalies? Because they always look like they're having fun, actually. Well, I mean, the reality is the players technically supposed to score. You know, you look at that, especially those that don't know much about. So you look at that and go, wow, that net is huge. Like, how do you miss the shot, right? So you're kind of, as a player, you're expected to score. So that adds, a, the shooter, sorry, is expected to score. So that adds a little bit more. And the goalies can have a little bit more fun with it. You know, they're they're moving around. They can dance along the line. They can Their, their objective is to try to distract and disrupt the, you know, the attention of, of that shooter and, and see what they can do to play a little bit of what you'd call like a head game or psychological warfare, if you will. And so I, I do think they have a little bit more fun. I mean, they're under a lot of pressure. There's a ton of stress associated with them. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's different for sure. Yeah. How do you, how do you coach them about getting into a good frame of mind right there? Cause clearly it's the opposite of what you're trying to get. Maybe not the opposite, but the shooter has to be very, disciplined and focused meanwhile the uh the goalie is just trying to get them out of that groove right yeah well i mean i think one from a preparation standpoint you want it as a goalie you want to be familiar with who's shooting and where they tend to shoot and, and familiarize yourself with that aspect and then another part of it is there's there's some pretty good research to suggest that the longer a player takes to shoot the less likely they are to score because it adds think time, which can increase heart rate. And as you can imagine, all of those things you probably don't want. Right. So one of the things we worked on with, with Canada's goalkeeper is how do you actually force the opposition shooter to take longer to shoot? So if you watched in, again, in Tokyo, our right. goalkeeper, Steph Labe would, would walk up, she would smile at them, she would slowly walk back to her net, and that's just creating more think time for for the shooter, and that is an advantage to the goaltender in my in my opinion, because it's creating more more think time, more lag time for them to stand there isolated by themselves and maybe ruminating over what could happen. So that that's maybe one of the tools that a goalkeeper could use as well to, to create a little bit of an advantage. Alex, it sounds like chess. It sounds like it's all mind <laughs> games. <laughs> It certainly is. It certainly is, but fun ones. I was thinking this must apply, Alex, to every other sport too when you watch people shooting free throws and hockey when it's penalty shots. It, there's just that element. I mean, there's always an element, I think, of psychology, as you you will, you know much better than I do in all this, uh, but that when it comes to that one-on-one competition, especially in team sports, that there's a whole strange dynamic going on. Well, certainly there is, and there's there's a lot of different variety within different sports. You mentioned basketball and the free throw. Um, you mentioned the, the penalty shot in hockey, which is, you know, slightly different. I mean, it's a one versus one scenario, but there is movement. The player, it's not a fixed location where you're delivering right. from, so the, the hockey player is actually coming down towards the net. So there is some variability, but there's ton of crossover in all of those scenarios. 
Yeah, when you look ahead to um, to the rest of this World Cup, I mean, I guess it must bring back memory, memories of Canada's incredible run in Japan, too, because it just boils down to two very evenly matched teams, often, not always, and then just that moment, like who's going to be able to survive the pressure at the end? Oh, absolutely. And and those that don't, you know, same similar, there's a lot of research on how to, how to deliver well, and there's also uh, some research on what what factors into not being able to deliver in those moments and, and what happens. And I think your point about uh, the fact that it's sort of a 1v1 situation, it's pretty controlled for the most part. Like how often in sports do you get to like stand and put the ball exactly where you want and set it up the way, you know, that doesn't really happen in a fluid game. So what happens is in a, in a moment like that, when the pressure starts to rise, our instincts actually is to try to over control something that we can do automatically. So actually think, for example, in, in golf, it might be like really thinking about how to take the club back away from the ball and how your shoulders should turn. And there's a lot of thinking that goes into something that you could just do naturally on repeat. And same with soccer, you know, which, which part of my foot do I need to hit this at? Whereas if you just put the ball down, walked up and shot it, you know, like I said before, 10 out of 10 times, these guys would put it exactly where they wanted to. So it becomes that over control aspect that actually gets in the way. Tell me about the chip shot, the so-called Panenka, because I've always been, those are when the player just walks up and sort of walks up quite quickly. It looks like they're about to drill the ball and then casually just sort of lifts it, sort of gives a little chip shot into the net. And you think, oh, if you miss that, and I've seen the mist, it's, it's humiliating, but when it works, it looks great. Yeah, I mean, like like you said, it looks great, and when you miss it, everyone in the world goes, "Why would they ever do that? That's yeah. that was that was ridiculous. Why not just hit it as hard as you could?" I, I would liken that one more to like the change up in baseball, where right. the idea is to get the goalie moving, you know, and and a, and you sort of change up the rhythm of it so they kind of expect something faster coming at them. They and a lot. Keep in mind, a lot of the goalie's job is to anticipate, so they're generally guessing a direction in advance. So you're sort of trying to lead them in a certain way and then just trying to chip it. And sometimes it's chipped right down the middle, nice and slow. And the goalie's already dove or committed, committed to a direction. Look it up on, uh, on YouTube. If you want 1976, Czechoslovakia, I believe they beat West Germany and it was uh, Panenka was his name. And he delivered this little chip shot in the penalties. And it was, people were like, what was that? Uh, Alex, <laughs> Alex Hodgins, thank you so much. This really is as much about the mind as it is about the foot. I was, I'm glad, I'm glad you shared that with us. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That's the voice of Elizabeth Chan, who is actually known as the queen of Christmas officially. You may not know the name necessarily. I'm sure you've heard one of her songs when you're out shopping. Uh, She's had a Santa's bag full of hits over the last decade or so. Um, She's been releasing Christmas albums now for the past 12 years after she quit her job as a marketing executive and decided to write Christmas songs full time. In fact, she writes Christmas songs the whole year except for during Christmas, believe it or not. Uh, But it's led to great success. Um, As I was mentioning, 12 albums, the 12th one is just out and a whole bucket load of uh, hit singles as well on the adult contemporary charts on Billboard. The reason I say this is because we were thinking, we talked about Charlie, a Charlie Brown Christmas a few nights ago on the show, and just how timeless that soundtrack, that Vince Guaraldi soundtrack is, even though 
Now, there, there are many Christmas songs on it, even though a song like Linus and Lucy is not a Christmas song. And yet it has become so associated with the time, with the, with the season, that it has become a Christmas classic. Um, in fact, it debuted on this night back in 1965, A Charlie Brown Christmas. And it got me thinking about what makes for a classic. Why is it that there are some songs that stand the test of time, that they come back year after year after year, like one of your favorite decorations on the tree, and there are others that are simply listened to and discarded like wrapping paper? Um, you know, you think of the classics, Bing Crosby's White Christmas or Silent Night, Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, Jingle Bell Rock, Elvis's Blue Christmas. There are modern ones, too, you know, like Wham's Last Christmas, Paul McCartney's... Um, Great one, whose name is going to suddenly slip my mind. Wonderful Christmas time. Uh, Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad. Uh, the Supremes, my favorite things. There's a bunch of them. Christmas and Hollis by Run DMC. Yes, there's Christmas rap as well. So what makes for a memorable holiday track? Uh, again, who better to let us know than singer-songwriter um, Elizabeth Chan, who published, who writes tons of, she's written hundreds of them. Um, over the course of many, many years. Uh, she's just, again, released her 12th album. It's called uh, In 12 Years. It's fittingly called 12 Months of Christmas. And uh, as I mentioned, she's had a whole bunch of Christmas hits. So Elizabeth Chan, the queen of Christmas officially. Uh, again, her 12th album is out now called uh, The 12 Months of Christmas. The first single is called Mary Mary. And she joins us now from New York. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Yeah, 12 albums in 12 years. That's remarkable. That's a remarkable, a remarkable amount of Christmas music to to think of, to compose. Uh, take, me, take me back to your love of Christmas music. It must, like all of us, it must go back to childhood. Absolutely. I mean, like, I, I just remember so clearly when I was seven years old, I just always fell in love with the way that Christmas music was just so magical in, in my life. And I grew up in New York City. So after American Thanksgiving, um, Christmas music plays 24 hours a day in New York City. And my parents would keep it on the radio. And I, and me and my, my sister would keep the radio on 24 hours a day. Even when we were sleeping, we would sleep to Christmas music. And I just remember just the magic of hearing, you know, certain songs and the intros to it was just it's a feeling that even today I still have, you know, it's just something that I always knew was my calling to do. You know, they say that you're the person you become by the time you're seven. And I, I truly believe that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I story, I'm sticking to it. Like I knew uh, that. I yeah. I, I used to pretend I was hosting American top 40. So I almost got there. I almost got there. <laughs> but that's remarkable. So, but I, th this was, I mean, growing up, I'm sure uh, if you would explain to someone, you know, Hey, listen, I'm going to be a Christmas song writer a christmas song recording artist people would have thought well you know as you've mentioned before that's not really a job right so you went out and actually did the conventional thing for quite a while before you thought uh, i'm going to be a christmas song artist well my parents when i told them as a little girl that i wanted to write christmas music and be a singer and a songwriter they were appalled i mean i'm 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 a child of immigrants and they they were like we didn't come all this way for you to to be a singer that's not even a job like job that job doesn't exist and they weren't wrong but you know ultimately i did everything what i did everything right i did everything that everyone told me i was supposed to do i went to school i got good grades i got a good job i had a great resume i had a great career and yet by the time i was 30 i was so empty like i had it all on paper 
I, I had it all on paper and I still felt like something was missing. And I looked around at my desk at the time and at my, at my job and I was sitting in a meeting and I was like, is this it? Is this all I'm going to amount to? I, I knew that I, I was always meant to be somebody else. And you always wait for someone to give you that chance. But I knew at that moment that no one was going to give me that chance because I had waited so long to find me and I haven't, I hadn't found her yet. So I ended up quitting my job. Um, I worked in marketing in a cubicle, like millions of people across the globe. And I just reported to my living room. I worked from home, which is not very uncommon today, but was very uncommon 12 years ago. And I just reported to my living room. And every day I said to myself, okay, if I'm going to work for myself, I must write a song a day, one Christmas song a day. And before I knew it, I had hundreds. And before I knew it, it was 12 years later, 11 radio hits, billboard hits later, 12 Christmas albums. At any moment in the world, like I have maybe like two or three dozen songs that play at, at, at any single time. So it's extraordinary when you actually just give yourself a chance. I feel like sometimes the, the thing that gets in our way is ourselves. And I think once we learn that we can trust ourselves and, and have faith and belief that there are better things for ourselves if we l- allow it around the corner. That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? Isn't that the most Christmassy message I can send to anyone? You know, It is. And it must inspire you to write as well. I, I read something quite interesting, though, that you don't actually write Christmas songs. You write Christmas songs all year, except during Christmas. Yes, I don't write Christmas songs during Christmas. I don't, because I don't think it works. I think that in order for you to reflect on something, you have to be kind of away from it and miss it and and long for it and be wistful and live in the memory of why you miss it so much. And I think that when you hone in on those emotions and as an artist, it, you know, my songs are just a vessel for those feelings. I feel it's really important to not be in the moment of, of Christmas and to see it from the outside and, and, and describe it in a way that you can't when you're in it. Right. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Or- well, I mean, I, mean I, I, I just imagine it must be tough to write a Christmas song in the middle of a, you know, a sweltering July day in New York. I like love it. it. Would, oh, no, I love it. <laughs> because we have to turn on our air conditioner. Right. So like right. it's a perfect, Time to put on like all my favorite sweaters and like drink hot coke. It's perfect, actually. But um, but also during Christmas, I'm a mom now of a, a five year old and two year old, and just you know, Christmas becomes about our children as well. So it's it's just I want to live in that moment too. I don't want to worry about my job when my job is to be like a mom, and I want to be in the moment. So for me, during Christmas time, it's really important for me to be like present. You know, not not like giving presents, but actually present with my family. So, yeah, no, it makes it makes it makes complete sense because you you're thinking about Christmas the whole year. You might as well enjoy. You're you're not going to have much to write about if you don't enjoy the, actually stop and enjoy the season, right? Exactly. I made that rule about um, I think three or four years into my career, I realized that if I didn't set those boundaries, I was really going to sacrifice my own Christmases in a way that I didn't think was beneficial for why I love the season so much. So I make a rule that I I don't work and I don't travel anywhere by Christmas Eve. And through the new year, I'm strictly with my family. It's 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 something that's really kind of sacred to me to protect. 
Elizabeth Chan is with us this half hour. The Queen of Christmas, her 12th album is now out called 12 Months of Christmas. The lead single is called Merry Merry. I suggest you go have a look because it is indeed a Christmas song, but it doesn't feel like Christmas music can be anything, right? That's what's so wonderful about it in many ways. And I imagine even when you were seven listening to Christmas songs, you would have heard that wide variety of things that we were exposed to by, you know, the 90s and so on, which they were were sort of the classics, but there were also newer things that were much poppier and much more upbeat. Uh, So there's a real wide gamut there that you could that you can turn to and be inspired by and you know it must be it must be it must be a very blank canvas that you can you can draw on I live a very distinctive life in the sense that I live Christmas music every day so for me I have the great fortune to kind of see the world through the lens of a Christmas music artist so you know as I was starting writing music I mean I just every day I would just write songs about Christmas and juxtapose it to things, whether or not they made sense. So I would write Christmas songs for my puppy at the time. Or um, I wrote a song called Cinco de Mayo Christmas. Don't <laughs> ask me, but I did it. So. <laughs> why not? Why not? Right. Um, so for, for me, it's it's been like Christmas and, and, and thinking about Christmas and the memories of it all is my my canvas. And and, you know, I have a, an incredible team of musicians that I work with as a record producer that I'm able to color in the lines of the ways that I want to say and, and capture the thoughts that I have around the season. Um, so it's it's been quite fun. I mean, I've done everything from jazz to EDM to pop to orchestral to disco. Mary Mary is a disco song. Mm-hmm. And I, I love disco. And I just, I thought that we were in need of some happiness this year. So for me, that was something that I wanted to make it accessible for everybody. And um, for me, Christmas music is almost like a, a public service of sorts. Like I, I often think about when I curate an album, because a lot of the times I don't release a record until I know that the songs are timeless. So sometimes I'll write a song and then I'll leave it in my vault. And if I can remember the melody and I can remember the lyrics without much prompting, then I know that it has what it takes to be a classic Christmas record. And when I think about what I want to say in an album, like this this year I named my album 12 Months of Christmas because I lived um, fighting for Christmas all year round this year in a way that I had never have before. And I thought about like all the things and the messages that I wanted to impart on people at the end of this year, knowing that there was a global recession and so many layoffs and just kind of focused on the songs that I thought that I thought people would want to connect with. So an example of one of the songs is a uh, new boss for Christmas. Right. Right. So I have a song about just all the people that are going to, you know, sit around their Christmas tree with, with their families and think like, what I would really like is just a new boss for Christmas, you know? And, and I wrote that song when I quit my job 10 years ago and I unearthed it this year to share with people, to let everyone know that I get it. I get I get where that inflection point is and what it feels like. And I want to offer people songs that they can relate to. I think about my albums in a way where I really want to speak to people through Christmas songs, you know? It's an interesting way of looking at it because when one looks at, at Christmas music, sort of the classics as we think of them, you know, it's if it's Bing Crosby or it's in, you know, if you if you grew up in the 80s, maybe it's Wham or, or, or Band-Aid, you know, there's many Christmas songs out there. Uh, but but what unites them, I guess, is that they are quite 
They are quite. I mean, sentimental would be would be seems like a like a slight, and I don't want it to sound like that. But they are sentimental. Like they 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 bring up sentiment, right? That's what Christmas music is about. Is it makes you feel something? Yeah, the best ones do. And 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 actually, it's funny that you say that because I'll write a song, right? And if tears come out while I'm writing it or when I listen back to it, I put that song at the top of my vault and I say, "This is where I've been most honest." And this is the song that I want, that I think people will connect with, right? And 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 actually, I I I'm most proud of the songs that have that I've poured myself out into these songs, and I've seen them connect with people. Like there's one song that I wrote called "Ghost of Christmas Past," and I wrote it for my grandmother, who's no longer with us, who really um, you know inspired me to live Christmas in the way that I do today. And I've gotten notes around the world um, from people saying how much they needed a song like this at Christmas and how one family chose it for their wedding song for, um, you know, and it's just, it's an extraordinary honor to meet people where I'm thinking about where I want to meet people. And it's that inflection point during the holidays, you know? It is. Are you, will will you, Will you continue? Is this uh, you've made twelve now? Twelve is always a number that it's, that's that round Christmas number, the twelve that's, days of Christmas, yeah, and so funny. on. <laughs> I mean, I actually Variety said that I have broken the record for most original Christmas albums. Listen, right. the only person you can ask is uh, you know the big guy. The <laughs> big guy. I will. I will do. I will do this as long as I am able to. I. I. You know, like I, I think that's the thing, though. All great Christmas songs, the history of them, whether it's Jingle Bells or Silent Night, it took 20 to 30 years for those songs to become famous or to become well-known because it takes one Christmas at a time to get to know a Christmas song. It's true. And, 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 And I am only at year 12. I'm a baby Christmas songwriter here. Yeah, it's amazing. Those songs do take a long time to sort of become what we call Christmas classics, right? I mean, it can take dozens and dozens of years for songs to be to move up move up into that into that you know exalted territory and i've already made peace with the fact that i may not see that moment in my lifetime but i am very proud that i've not wasted one day since the day that i decided i was going to do this not one day have i ever looked back and said i didn't try my best i i didn't do as much as i could for myself and for the christmas genre You know, like the one Christmas wish that I've always had is that I could see what my daughters, who my daughters become when they're like 80 or 90 years old, right? I'll never have that ability, but I could be there with them through my songs. Yeah. I imagine your daughter, Noelle, will always remember (laughs) why she has her name. Uh, I was reading that. Yeah, well, she she writes Christmas music too. And you know, do you know what's really kind of crazy is that? She wrote her first Christmas music when she was two years old. Wow. The song was good. And I was like, what? Like, I've been doing this for years and you just come out of the womb and you do this? Like, not fair. Not fair. She's been surrounded by Christmas music genius for, for her entire life. So <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, Elizabeth Chan, much appreciated. Thank you so much and have a wonderful holidays. Of course. Merry Christmas to everybody and happy holidays. <laughs> Well, I'm not an aviation buff, but I do live in Victoria. Seattle's right down the road. We go quite often because it's so close. And of course, uh, you can't go to Seattle without thinking about Boeing. And in Seattle, Everett, really, 
just outside of Seattle. The end of an era this week, the end of a glorious era in flight rolled off the assembly line. The 1,574th and final Boeing 747 rolled out of the company factory, uh, ending more than a half century production run of the jumbo jet. And workers at Boeing, many of whom had worked on the 747 for a very long time, shared their thoughts about the legacy that they helped build. To see it roll out for the last time, it is kind of a surreal. It's just that, that bittersweet. It's hard to fathom that it's the last time. It's the end. You have the queen of the skies, you know. It's pretty interesting to be a part of all this. You know, it's, it's an emotional time. I think it's just, you know, 747 changed aviation. It changed the way with the world connected. There's a part of us rolling out with this thing, you know. Boeing workers there talking about the final 747, the 1,574th to roll off the assembly line. It's hard to overstate, as they put it, the impact of the so-called queen of the skies on aviation. The planes could carry hundreds of passengers at a time uh, that long for long-haul flights, which was a big deal. It helped open the skies to a huge range of passengers. It really sort of democratized air travel. That might be putting too much on it, but part of it. And of course, they made it easier to fly cargo as well. They were at first primarily cargo planes. That transformed uh, the delivery of consumer goods right around the world. So a really important part of our history, our aviation history as well. It all started when Pan Am, you'll remember them, Pan Am's one trip made a $500 million deal with Boeing that set the 747 in motion. He wanted a bigger plane. Uh, and you can tell from this 1969 Pan Am commercial that the jumbo jet was a very big deal indeed. Chances are you've heard about the plane with the spiral staircase in first class. The plane with the two wide aisles and the three widescreen movies and the eight-foot ceilings and economy. And chances are you've wondered, who's going to get this incredible bird off the ground? Now you know. Pan Am will bring you the world's first 747. Pan Am will bring you the plane with all the room in the world before you know it. Yeah, it was a big deal. 1969 Pan Am, of course, so integral to the development of the 747, also the first to fly it. Many others did afterwards. Air Canada, of course, had 747s. I remember them. I just can't can't remember distinctly. I must have been on dozens of 747s. But uh, I do remember the staircase. That's one thing I do remember from early flying. What's amazing about those 747s is just how much early days, how much room there was. I mean, compared to today... It's like the difference between being in like a Lada versus being in a limousine. It's, it's remarkable. Um, but there was much more to them than that. Of course, they're four-engine planes. They were big. Um, they were expensive to run. And demand over time has moved towards smaller, lighter, certainly more fuel-efficient aircraft. Uh, and so Airbus and now Boeing have both gone away from that kind of that kind of plane. Well, joining me now with more on this is Ted Hutter. He's an aviation historian and a senior manager uh, of public relations and promotions at the Museum of Flight in Seattle. They have the, a prototype of the very first Boeing 747 at the museum. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. This is remarkable. You know, I think it kind of, I mean, I wasn't aware that this was going to be the, you know, the 1547th, I think, and final 747. Uh, but it's such a big deal to Boeing, to Seattle, to aviation, really the end of an era this week. I, I think it comes as, would come to a surprise to the people that designed and built this plane over 50 years ago. 
that it would take this long for the final one to be built. Why is that? Because when you look back at it, I gather it came in as the queen of the skies, huge fanfare, but it really transformed aviation. It, it did. The 747 was such a breakthrough in so many different ways. It came at a time that the jet age was, was established by then, and it was a popular way to travel, but it was mostly business people. It wasn't cheap yet. The ranges were limited. You know, the, the 707, which was very popular and used by most of the major airlines, they could barely make it across the Atlantic Ocean. So it didn't have that flexibility. And as airline travel was, was becoming more popular, terminals were getting more crowded. There was more congestion. And this led to uh, Juan Tripp, who was the president of uh, Pan Am. He came to Bill Allen, who was the president of Boeing. They'd known each other for decades and basically said, you know, if you can design a bigger airplane, I'll buy it. It's an amazing feat of engineering as well, because I gather, of course, the same thing that made it so groundbreaking is also, you know, as always is the case with technology, the same thing that probably uh, made it obsolete eventually now, many, many years later. Uh, but tell me a bit about about sort of the, the first jumbo jet. What was it about the high bypass engine technology, for instance, that made it so revolutionary? That's the thing about this airplane that's so remarkable is that they were attempting something that had never been done before technologically. It was literally twice the size of any of the other jetliners at the time. So the challenges were formidable. A lot of people thought that it couldn't be done. But with this challenge also from Pan Am to produce something that large, the company really needed the plane and used the, the best engineers and the best technology at the time to accomplish it. It all came together in just a remarkably perfect way. It, almost from day one, it was, it was a good airplane. What was the reaction like back then uh, from the public? Because, of course, the public would be a bit off-put by such a large plane, wondering how it would get off the ground. I mean, we had that in later years with other massive planes as well. Exactly. And and that's what's interesting is it, it was at a time in aviation where people thought that this thing won't be able to fly. It was unprecedented. That alone was remarkable. But what what Boeing discovered that was interesting is that there were probably more doubts amongst the in the industry and uh, with the professionals about the public's acceptance of something so huge as with the public themselves. There were, it did not take very long at all for it to just sort of grab the attention of the general public. And it really became a, a a star in a way overnight it was something special that everyone and everybody wanted to be a part of yeah airlines quite literally broke down the doors in seattle to try to get their hands on these 747s in the early days exactly as soon as it became known that it was popular it became the airliner of choice all of the major airlines they they really had to have one whether they needed it or not it was part of the prestige, part of keeping up with the Joneses. It was one of those things that that never really ended. And 
the fact that we're talking about it now really, really says something about that. It does. You look at it now and you think, my God, there's a lot of room on that plane <laughs> compared to what you have today. Exactly. It's uh, it's still a large plane. And, you know, the the version that came out of the factory this week, the last of many uh, versions of this airplane, which is also the reason why 50 plus years later, it's still being flown is that it kept advancing with the technology. New and better engines were fitted to it, so it became more efficient. It had better range than ever before, could carry more weight than the original planes. It's a bigger plane now. This this Dash 8 final version is, is much bigger than the original one. So it kept up with the technology. But as you mentioned earlier, there were other technological advances that also contributed to its demise. Yeah, I guess airlines wanted smaller planes, right? And suddenly the jumbo jet uh, wasn't as as economical or as efficient as it used to be. And, and as always, I mean, technology, it's remarkable that it lasted as long as it did, really, if you look at the history of aviation. There's another aspect to it that uh, the rest of us don't see very often. And that's probably the most important reason the plane continues to fly, is that from the very beginning, it was envisioned as a freighter, as an air freighter. That's what got the plane through its first few years before it really caught on with the public. And that was during an economic recession and gas prices and everything else. So it took a few years for the airlines to start buying them as airliners in mass quantities. But it changed air freight almost immediately because that was something that was ongoing regardless and it was the cheapest most efficient way to transport goods long distances as you mentioned the last one to roll off the assembly line is in fact a cargo plane right exactly and uh, they'll probably be flying that way for decades in fact most of the passenger carrying airplanes once they're retired were often bought by the freight companies and converted into cargo airplanes. This also comes at, at a real moment of change for Boeing too. One thinks of the 747 as sort of being their signature plane, but there's nothing to replace it, is there? Well, Boeing came out with the uh, the triple sevens in the 1990s, and that was the first of the uh, twin engine jumbo jets. So there you had a plane that was almost at the load carrying capacity of the 747 and with these giant new engines it was able to do it much more efficiency that plane really is now replacing the 747 for large capacity uh, flights the the new version of the 777 will carry as many people as the conventional 747 and do it with two engines instead of four Right, the 777X, right? I guess that's been delayed, yes. is that right? We're still waiting on it? It's still in, in flight tests. I'm not sure exactly when it will be um, entering service. I think sometime in another year, perhaps. Yeah. But we see them flying out here at Boeing Field, and they are a sight. They're, they're huge, and they're a beautiful plane. Yeah, and, and, and just for the community itself, I mean, the 747 in some ways, not to put not to wax poetic too much, but the 747 kind of helped build Seattle too, to some extent. I mean, Boeing's such an important 
part of the community, but the 747 was part of that too, wasn't it? Oh, yes. In an interesting way in that it kind of saved the company because at the time that we're looking at the late 1960s and in addition to, you know, the the obvious need of a larger plane, really the trend was going towards faster. So this is a time that most believe that the supersonic transports were the future of commercial aviation. Why would someone want to spend more time on a plane if they can go faster? That was the main focus of Boeing and then, of course, Concorde. And and the Russians had a plane as well. They thought that was going to be the future. And the 747 was developed kind of in the background of that at the same time. Then the SST, the US SST that Boeing was working on gets canceled by Congress. Huge impact for the company. If it weren't for the 747 being such a success, right at about that same time that they had to cancel what they thought was their future, I think Boeing itself might have changed hands. They were heavily into debt on this program and they really needed that success and it paid off. Yeah, it strikes me as odd now to think about it that the basketball team was still called the Supersonics, even though it was the 747 that saved the day. Exactly. <laughs> so, it, I mean, I have, I, I've been on 747s before. Um, when you look at the old videos today and you see the staircases in the movies, it feels like such a different era of passenger travel. Uh, but any final thoughts for uh, for the Queen of the Skies as it as it rolls? It really flies off into history. Well, I I look forward to being there when it finally flies away, which will probably be the first week or so in February. Like you said, it is an end of an era, but we will be seeing these planes probably for decades. You have a prototype too, don't you? Tell me about that. Yes. uh, The Museum of Flight has the very first 747 made, the prototype. It's like the crown jewel of our collection. It is outfitted as it always was, which as a test airplane. This was never an airliner. So the inside of it is a big cavernous space with instrumentation and things like that, that it would have been used for back in those days. But the upstairs still has the lounge that really, you walk up that spiral staircase and enter the lounge and it's a time machine. You're back to 1969. That whole concept of having that spiral staircase. I can remember the spiral staircase in a 747 just barely. But wow, what a different time (laughs) that was. It was. And the 747 really personified that. You look at the advertisements for the airlines at that day. It was all about glamorous photos, usually in the upper deck lounge of the 747, in wild clothes, shag carpets, everything. The 747 far outlived uh, a lot of the 70s fashion, and that's a good thing. (laughs) Ted Hunter, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. 